0: Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 20th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, true Israel, and thank you for listening. Many little details and much of the seemingly innocuous language which Paul of Tarsus used in his epistles actually serves to sew together the historic context of the Old Testament with the stated purpose of the Gospel. Denominational Christians remain ignorant, not even conceiving what Paul had actually meant by many of the statements which he had made. So while it may seem that we often spend an inordinate amount of time on paltry details, Those details are as necessary to a firm understanding of Scripture as each of 10,000 little nails are to the structural integrity of the house. Tonight we will be presenting Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians, which we plan on doing in three parts right now. I thought it would be two, but it's definitely going to be three. And this part is subtitled, The Righteousness of God. We have to look back to the Old Testament to see what it is. It's not what most Christians think that it is. As we had demonstrated from the circumstances provided, in one Thessalonians chapter three, verse six, when compared with Acts chapter eighteen, verse five, where it says, And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in his spirit, and testified to the Judeans, that Jesus was the Christ, of course Paul was in Corinth, and we had demonstrated that Paul had written the first epistle to the Thessalonians shortly after he began to preach the gospel in Corinth. Timothy and Silas were originally sent to Thessalonica by Paul from Athens, and they were evidently reunited with Paul in Corinth, as we are informed, in Acts 18.5, where they reported to him the state of the Christian assembly in Thessalonica, as we are informed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It was that report, along with apparent inquiries that the Thessalonians had made of Paul which had given him the motivation to write that first epistle to the Thessalonians. Now, there is no definite statement to inform us who had delivered the first epistle to Thessalonica, whether it was Timothy and Silas who had again made the journey, or whether it was delivered by another. However, here, as Paul writes this second epistle, Timothy and Silas are with him once again, and they are included in his salutation as they had been in the first epistle. There is also no direct evidence as to when this second epistle to the Thessalonians was written. However, since the major theme of this epistle is an elaboration of things which Paul had said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It is evident that the first epistle must have compelled the Thessalonians to send Paul further inquiries which he answers here. So it is also evident that this second epistle to the Thessalonians must have been written from Corinth a short time After Paul had sent them his first epistle. This account of the writing of Paul's letters demonstrates that these two epistles which he had written to the Thessalonians are the earliest of Paul's fourteen surviving epistles. And we would also assert that they are the earliest of his seventeen known epistles since there are at least three, which we know of, which are missing. The third of Paul's surviving epistles is the epistle to the Galatians, which was written either at Antioch, or a short time after he had departed from Antioch on his way to visit the Galatians, as his journey is described towards the end of Acts chapter 18. It can be clearly demonstrated that all, of Paul's other epistles follow these. The proximity of the writing of this second epistle to the first letter which Paul had written to the Thessalonians is made evident in the content and context of the epistles themselves. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Paul had described in brief the promised second advent, or second coming, of the Christ. Then, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul had said, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to be written to you, for you yourselves know thoroughly that the day of the prince comes as a thief in the night, when they say peace and security then suddenly destruction comes upon them, even as a labor pang, to her who is with child, and by no means shall they escape. We shall soon see that this second epistle to the Thessalonians builds on this precise theme. So the Thessalonians, or as the Greek spelling goes, the Thessalonikians, Having received Paul's first epistle, must have written him back asking him to elaborate on those very words. This entire second epistle was written for that purpose as an elaboration of the first few verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now we shall commence with 2 Thessalonians. Chapter One. Paul and Silvanus, who is the Silas of Acts, and Timotheus or Timothy, to the to the assembly of Thessalonicians, among the number of Yahweh, our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ, favor to you and peace from Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ and all of the major manuscripts do have the repetition. Once again, we see Paul, in his salutation, give an equal status to Silas and Timothy in association with his ministry, which demonstrates that he esteemed both of them to be peers in his ministry. Silovanus, or Silas for short, as Luke had always written his name, only had that honor in these two epistles to the Thessalonians. And then here, in Corinth, he disappears from the biblical narrative until he was mentioned much later in the first epistle of Peter. Ostensibly, Peter's Silovanus is the same man, as Peter infers that he is well known among the Christian assemblies of Anatolia, which Paul had founded. Salovanus delivered Peter's first epistle to those assemblies, as we learn from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. In spite of the fact that many of his fellow workers were with him when various epistles were written, most notably even Luke and Titus, the only other New Testament figure besides Timothy and Silas, who merited such a mention in one of Paul's opening salutations is Sosthenes, the former leader of the assembly in Corinth, as we know from Acts chapter 18 verse 17, who was with Paul in Ephesus where he had written his first epistle to the Corinthians, as we learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in several places. Here he continues with verse 3, Obliged we are always to thank Yahweh concerning you, brethren, just as he is deserving, he is deserving of Paul's thanks. Because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of each and every one of you for one another abounds. Paul had already commended the Thessalonians for walking the Christian walk, And caring for one another, as he had told them in chapter 5 of his first epistle, where he said, on which account you encourage one another, and you build up one another, even just as you do. If Christians truly practised Christianity, if they all had lived each day for the edification of their kin and community, demonstrating the Christian love for one another which Christ demands of them, then the Jew and the Arab races and the Turks and the Mongols and the Negroes and all the enemies of Christ would naturally had been eliminated from Christian consideration, and would never have posed a threat to Christendom. In the verse which follows, Paul refers once again to the persecution of the assembly at Thessalonica by Jews and the pagan Greeks whom the Jews had incited, which is evident in Acts chapter 17, and which he had discussed at greater length in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he says, Consequently, we ourselves are boasting in you among the assemblies of Yahweh for your endurance and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions which you are bearing. And here Paul speaks of boasting about the Thessalonians to the other Christian assemblies and doing so At the same time, he is commending the Thessalonians once again. Ten years after writing this, Paul had written to the Christian assemblies at Rome, before he ever even visited Rome, and he said, Surely, that of your compliance has reached to all. Therefore, I rejoice concerning you. And then, further on, In that same epistle, and we're reading from Romans chapter 16, he wrote, Now with ability you are to stand fast in accordance with my good message and the proclamation of Yahshua Christ, in accordance with the revelation of mystery having been kept secret in times eternal." but being made manifest now through the prophetic writings in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh for the submission of faith to all the nations, in discovering that Yahweh alone is wise, through Yahshua Christ, to whom is honor for the ages. Early Christians, as it is apparent from this verse, and from Romans chapter 16. Early Christians found comfort that others along with them were sharing in the challenges and trials of the faith because, as we've just seen in Romans chapter 16, it was the proof of the acceptance of the gospel by the so-called lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this manner, the gospel was self-fulfilling as it was supposed to be. For that reason, Paul had told the Corinthians in his first epistle to them, that the proof of the anointed has been confirmed in you, because they had accepted the gospel as it went out to disperse Israel, and the children of Israel are indeed the anointed. This was presaged by Christ, in the gospel itself, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 13, that the gospel would go out into all the world, but it was also foretold in the prophets in places such as Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31, and Isaiah chapter 49. For example, the word of Yahweh says in Jeremiah 30, Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh. Neither be dismayed, O Israel. For, lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. The gospel of Christ is the news of that salvation. Then in Jeremiah chapter 31, Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness even Israel when I went to cause him to rest hear the word of the Lord O ye nations and declare it in the isles afar off and say he that scattered Israel will gather him as a shepherd does his flock for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. The Gospel of Christ is that very declaration. In that same chapter, the promise of a new covenant is made for the houses or the families of Israel and Judah. The Gospel of Christ is the declaration that Israel was told that they were going to receive. Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar of off. That same word of Yahweh, which he had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. He had also said, he had also spoken in Isaiah chapter 49 Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises. To him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. And the gospel of Christ is the message of redemption to those who are truly chosen, while at the same time it is a message of condemnation for the enemies of God. In summation, the promised Redeemer of the Old Testament shall choose the same people of Israel which the God of the Old Testament had also chosen. And Christ is that Redeemer of the Old Testament. Jeremiah was written long after the Assyrian deportations of both Israel and practically all of Judah, people who were never known to the world as Jews. From these people and those of the earlier migrations from ancient Israel, many of the nations of Europe were formed. Therefore, presenting 1 Corinthians chapter 19 here, 19, I'm sorry, chapter 1 here, 19 months ago, After discussing the purpose of those same chapters of Jeremiah and Isaiah, which we have just cited, we concluded the following. The proof of the anointed is found in the fact that the word of Yahweh God had prophesied that the nations of dispersed Israel would accept and comply with the gospel of Christ, and they did. That is what Paul is telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter. 1 verse 6, that the proof of the anointed is confirmed in you. As Joshua himself said, my sheep hear my voice. For that same reason, Paul wrote in chapter 15 of his epistle to the Romans, that indeed I will not venture to speak anything of which Christ has not fashioned through me regarding the compliance of the nations in word and deed by power, "...of signs and wonders, by power of the Spirit of Yahweh, consequently for me from Jerusalem and the circuit as far as Illyricum, to have fulfilled the good message of the Anointed." The Gospel message seeks the compliance of the nations of Israel to Yahweh their God. In chapter 4 of that same epistle to the Romans... Paul had explained that the nations to which he brought that gospel were the same nations descended from Abraham. So when Christians of the first century were pleased to hear that other communities in Europe had accepted the gospel, it is because they understood the fact that these prophecies concerning the children of Israel in captivity, were being fulfilled in them. This fundamental Christian message was the reason why Christians were persecuted by the Jews, as Luke recorded in Acts chapter 22, in verses 21 and 22, and as Paul explicitly attested in Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7 where he said, And now I stand and and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews." So, Christian identity is why Paul of Tarsus was persecuted. It's right there in Acts chapter 26. Therefore, here, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we won't get to it tonight, In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul will explain just who those Jews who persecute the truth actually are, just as he had in another way in Romans chapter 9. But first, remarking upon the Thessalonians and commending them for having endurance and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions which you are bearing in verse 5 of this chapter. Paul can, I'm sorry, in verse 4 of this chapter, Paul continues by referring to that suffering and persecution as a token of the righteous judgment of Yahweh for which you are to be deemed worthy of the kingdom of Yahweh, for which you also suffer. And as it says in Isaiah chapter 53, which is an explicit prophecy of the gospel of Christ, who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? But in more detail, in another messianic prophecy, The difficulty by which the gospel is accepted is foretold, addressing the drunkards of Ephraim, as well as the rulers of Judah, and the sins by which they had made a covenant with death. The word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 28, Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion, For a foundation stone, for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet and the hail and this hasn't happened yet, because we still live in one, and the hell shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it, From the time that it goes forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall pass over it, by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation, it shall be a vexation, only to understand the report. For the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than that he can wrap himself in it. And we have a similar English expression which goes, You made your bed, now lie in it. For men, there has always been a reluctance to do that. However, the Gospel of Christ is the message of life and the dissolution of that covenant with death. Where Paul mentions the righteous judgment of God, writing here to the Thessalonians, He can only mean to refer to that very same judgment and righteousness which had been promised by God in Isaiah in connection with the Christ and by which the covenant with death made by the ancient children of Israel is disannulled. The righteousness of Yahweh God in Christ is explained once again in Isaiah chapter forty six Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted that are far from righteousness, because the righteousness of man is nothing. I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory and the prepositions there are quite important. Many modern translations confound that last passage, evidently not believing what it says. But the original King James English is correct. Branton's English rendering of verse 13 of that same verse is a very fair translation of the Greek Septuagint, and it says, I have brought me my righteousness, And I will not be slow with the salvation that is from me. I have given salvation in Sion to Israel for glory. So, the righteousness of Yahweh is for the salvation of Israel. Old Testament Israel. Directly connected by Isaiah to the salvation of Israel. And the salvation in Zion is to Israel for glory. And that is the stated purpose of the gospel of Christ, as stated by the prophet over 700 years before the birth of Christ. As the word of God likewise promises in Isaiah chapter 45, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth, I said, not under the seed of Jacob. Seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. God declares things that are right. Man can't declare them. If all Israel is promised salvation, and nobody else is saved, they are all destroyed in a lake of fire. God declared that. That's his word. He declares what's right. We have no say in a man. And he goes on in that very same chapter. In Yahweh, in verse 25, in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. That same glory where he says, I have given salvation in Zion to Israel for glory. So once again, The righteousness of God is directly related to the salvation and glory of the children of Israel. Where in Isaiah 46.12, we read that Yahweh had said, Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. We see corroboration. That, as it says in the Proverbs, there is a way that seems right unto a man but the end thereof are the ways of death. So Israel only has true righteousness where it seeks the righteous judgment of God, as Paul has said here. And that righteous judgment has only been promised to the ancient people of Israel. And it has been promised to all of Israel and all the seed of Israel without exception, because God declares things that are right, not man. It has been promised in spite of their sins, and not because of their goodness, as they themselves have never been good and have always done evil, even to the point of forsaking the covenant of God and making a covenant with death. This same theme is found in Jeremiah as well. In Jeremiah chapter 23, we see an oracle against the shepherds of ancient Israel, who had caused the sheep of the flock to be scattered. Therefore, the word of Yahweh says in response, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute Judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called, Yahweh, our righteousness. Therefore behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that they shall no more say, Yahweh lives, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But Yahweh lives, which brought up and led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. These words in Jeremiah chapter 23 do not refer to Jews, but rather they refer to the people scattered in the north country long before the modern Jews had ever come into being. These people were scattered long before Jeremiah, and none of those people were ever known to the world as Jews. Josephus, the Judean historian, he knew in part who they were, and he had called them the Upper Barbarians. He never called them Jews. He called them Upper Barbarians. But in ancient history and archaeology, it can be established that there's those upper barbarians were known as Chimerians, Sacans, Scythians, Parthians, among other more specific tribal names. Isaiah chapter 41 is probably the most cited chapter of the Old Testament throughout our presentations of Paul's epistles, but again we cite it because it too explains what is the righteousness of God. But thou, Israel, from verse 8, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yeah. I will help thee, yeah. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Here it should be evident that the righteousness of God is what he does to uphold his word which in relation to the children of Israel, is found in his promises to the Old Testament patriarchs. So if all of Israel is not saved, then God is not righteous. But fortunately for us, our God is a righteous God, and he will keep his word. Next, as we have already stated, Paul begins to elaborate on certain things that he had written to the Thessalonians just a short time earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It is apparent that they must have written back to him after receiving his first epistle, asking him for such an elaboration. And he says here in verse 6, For indeed it is righteous with Yahweh to repay those afflicting you with affliction." the other side of the righteousness coin to save his people and to exterminate everybody else. The Apostle Peter said in his first epistle, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Likewise, in the very next verse from where we had just cited Isaiah chapter 41 in reference to the salvation of Israel and the righteousness of God in the very next verse of the chapter in verse 11 the word of Yahweh says Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded they shall be as nothing and they that strive with thee shall perish. That's the real reparations that they have coming. Thou shalt seek them, and shall not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. This is a Christian promise, Because properly, Christians are the same children of Old Testament Israel in the North Country, to whom those promises were made, according to Paul himself, in statements such as those found in Romans chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Acts chapter 26. During 300 years of persecution while there was also a massive propaganda campaign, you see the propaganda campaigns that Satan launches today all over the media, during 300 years of persecution, while there was also a massive propaganda campaign and an early infiltration of Christianity by Jewish thoughts and ideas, all the way back to the so-called Christian Fathers of Alexandria. If not by Jews themselves, by the 4th century, by the 4th Christian century, this aspect of the purpose of the Gospel was lost to a newly universal church in spite of the fact that it is clear in the words of the Apostles and the Prophets and shrouded in the annals of history. By the 4th century, Christians had forgotten the plain fact that the nations of Paul's ministry were indeed the nations descended from the ancient dispersions of the Israelites, as he himself had explicitly stated in Romans chapter 4 and elsewhere. As it says in the 44th Psalm, which Paul himself had cited in Romans chapter 8. Yea, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hottest thou thy face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? for our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaves to the earth. Arise for our help, and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Next, herein two Thessalonians chapter one, verse seven, Paul mentions a promise of relaxation for those who are being afflicted, and with that we shall search out the greater historical reasons for this affliction. And to you who are being afflicted, relaxation, or perhaps rest. With us at the revealing of Yahshua the Prince from Heaven with the messengers of His power. The people of Yahweh God had a promise of rest from the time that the nation was founded, if indeed they would obey his commandments. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses inquires of Yahweh and says, If I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people." And the response which he received is, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, where two and a half tribes are left in the land of Moab, east of the Jordan, we read where Yahweh addresses those tribes and says, And I commanded you at that time, saying, Yahweh your God has given you this land to possess it. Ye shall pass over. Armed before your brethren, the children of Israel, the other nine and a half tribes, or ten and a half, depending on your perspective, all that are meat for the war, but your wives and your little ones and your cattle, for I know that you have much cattle, shall abide in your cities which I have given you, until Yahweh has given rest unto your brethren as well as unto you. And until they also possess the land which Yahweh your God has given them beyond Jordan, and then shall you return every man unto his possession which I have given you. That address being made to the two and a half tribes who were given land west of the Jordan. Then, where the larger number of tribes are about to cross the Jordan, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we read from verse 1, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land, which Yahweh, the God of thy fathers, giveth thee to possess it, all the days that ye live upon the earth, ye shall utterly destroy All the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains, and upon the hills, and under every green tree. And ye shall overthrow their altars, and break their pillars, and burn down their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto Yahweh your God, But unto the place which Yahweh your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and there thou shalt come. Ye shall, skipping to verse 8, ye shall not do after all the things that you do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. For you are not as yet Come to the rest and to the inheritance which Yahweh your God gives you. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which Yahweh your God gives you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which Yahweh your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. So the children of Israel... <coughs> I'm sorry. The children of Israel were promised a period of rest once all of their enemies were destroyed. This historical example serves as a type, as a model for the history which was to come. And for the same reason, the creation of God was described in an allegory of six days. After which Yahweh God rested on the seventh, which is His rest. This we read in the 95th Psalm, referring back to that very time of Moses and Joshua in the Exodus, where it says, Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long I was grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath, that they should not enter into my rest. The children of Israel failed to do what they had been commanded, and for that reason they failed to enter into Yahweh's period of rest at that time and they still fail. However, the promise of rest still stands, and they shall ultimately enter into it, as Paul says in Hebrews, where he is also speaking of the ancient Israelites in comparison to those now in Christ. Let us therefore fear, Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, meaning the people back in the time of Moses, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it, so they had no resulting works." For which, for we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, meaning that all of these things were foreseen by God. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day, from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in, because of unbelief, meaning the Israelites of the Exodus. Again, he limits a certain day, meaning that a certain day was Designated, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, meaning Joshua of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan, for if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? In other words, if Joshua if the children of Israel had achieved that period of rest in the time of Joshua, then David would not have referred to another day where they would enter into Yahweh's rest. And Paul says in verse 10 of that chapter of Hebrews, For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works. Paul, understanding that the seven-day Sabbath cycle is a plan of God's for the children of Israel. As God did from His. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. If the children of Israel were explicitly promised a period of rest exclusive of all other people, and these Thessalonians can share in that rest along with the Hebrews, which Paul had also addressed, then these Thessalonians must be descendants of the ancient Israelites as well as Paul's Hebrews. Otherwise, the Thessalonians have no share in the promise of rest, and Paul had no business making common the word of God and corrupting those promises. However, history indeed shows that the Thessalonians descended from ancient Israelites, and therefore Paul is right to imagine that they could have a share in that rest which was promised to the ancient Israelites. The children of Israel were commanded to exterminate all of the enemies of Yahweh their God who were in Palestine. And in reference to that command, we read a warning in Joshua chapter 23. Take good heed thereunto, therefore unto yourselves, that you love Yahweh your God. Else, if you do in any ways go back... And cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you. Know for a certainty that Yahweh your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides. "...and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land, which Yahweh your God has given you." So many years later, as it is recorded in Judges chapter 2, it became clear that the Israelites would indeed fail to do as they were commanded. And it says, And an angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Boshin, and said, I made you go up out of Egypt, and I brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of Yahweh spoke these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. So, within one generation from their weeping, as that same chapter describes, the children of Israel were infiltrated and corrupted by the Canaanites, who they failed to slaughter. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and served Baalim. And they forsook Yahweh their God, the God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were around them, and bowed themselves under them, and provoked Yahweh to anger. And they forsook Yahweh, and served Baal and Ashtoreth, Just like when you put a couple of Negro families into a white neighborhood and all of a sudden all of the white kids are walking around with their hats on backwards and their pants down around their knees. It's the same thing. (laughs) Maybe a little more sophisticated 3,500 years later, but the white kids will be listening to rap music and acting like savages long before the nigger will get an education. Same thing. And instead of perpetual rest, the children of Israel, because of what they did, would have perpetual sin and perpetual war, as we read in Judges chapter 3. Now these are the nations which Yahweh left as their punishment to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, when they were promised perpetual rest, if they would only done what they were supposed to do at the beginning. At least such as before knew nothing thereof, meaning the children of Israel who knew nothing of war. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, that dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Balherman, unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them. To know whether they would hearken under the commandments of Yahweh. And that's why we have Negroes and Mestizos in all of our communities today. Because Yahweh is testing us to see which of us would follow His law. Which He commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and forgot Yahweh their god, and served Balaam and the groves. The, chi- the ancient children of Israel failed, to destroy the enemies of Yahweh their God as they were commanded, and therefore they never entered into the promised period of rest, which is the true Sabbath, which the seven-day Sabbath cycle represents, which Yahweh their God had offered them. That promised rest was supposed to be a rest from war, and from all the troubles they had previously faced, such as the slavery in Egypt, and the exodus and the subsequent years of wandering, all of the subsequent history of the Edenic race, and especially, meaning the white race, and especially of the children of Israel, as that part of the race which has been the focal point of the purpose of God, has hinged upon their failure to destroy their enemies 3,500 years ago. The balance of the Old Testament is an account of punishment, restoration, backsliding, and more punishment in an endless cycle until the children of Israel finally realize that the only thing that could save them is obedience to their God. And that is the obedience to the gospel of Christ, which was exhorted by Paul of Tarsus. That is what he had called the compliance of the nations in Romans chapter 15, as the nations to whom he had preached descended from those same ancient Israelites, every one of them. And for that reason, there was no epistle of Paul to the Arabs to the Hutus, to the Mandingos, to the Chinamen, to the squat monsters in India, the Chutney Niggers. Their failure is also why we live with Jews today. Presenting chapter 2 of this epistle, we hope to see that the enemies of Christ were those same enemies of Yahweh God, whom the children of Israel were told to destroy in the Old Testament. And in that chapter, Paul describes them as coming from Satan. The Jews are from Satan. The Jews are Satan, in the words of Paul of Tarsus. In regard to them, it says in Jude, where the apostle had quoted from Enoch, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and all of their hard speeches, like the crap found in the Talmud, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It is this same event which Paul described in verse 7 here, as the revealing of Yahshua the Prince from heaven with the messengers of his power. Now Paul continues his description by describing their coming. In a flame of fire, providing vengeance to those who do not know Yahweh, and to those who do not obey the good message of our Prince Yahshua, those who shall pay a penalty, eternal destruction from the presence of the prince, and from the effulgence of his strength, when he shall come to be honored among his saints, and to be admired with all those who believe, because our testimony to you was believed in that day. And let me say something that I I just caught on to here. This verse can be understood in two different ways. Where Paul says eternal destruction from the presence of the prince and from the effulgence of his strength. The part where it says from the presence of the prince isn't the penalty. That is how the penalty is exacted. That is when and how they will receive that eternal destruction. When he shall come to be honored among his saints and to be admired with all those who believe, because our testimony to you was believed in that day. Presenting 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 here, recently, we discussed last week we discuss the rapture of the wicked, the destruction of all of the enemies of Yahweh God at the second advent of His Christ, which is described in the prophets as well as the revelation of Christ. We elucidated the fact that the scriptures promised that the children of Israel themselves would have a part in that destruction. And therefore, as it says in Obadiah, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall be not any remaining of the house of Esau for Yahweh has spoken it. So that flame of fire may not be literal, where Paul says that the enemies of God will be destroyed in a flame of fire providing vengeance. It may be an allegorical flame, since the house of Joseph shall be a flame, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire. Where Paul says that Christ when he shall come to be honored among his saints, here in verse 10, and to be admired with all of those who believe, because our testimony to you is believed in that day. He shows a confidence that the saints, meaning the people of Yahweh, the descendants of Israel, the saints who are in the world, when this finally happens, will indeed have this understanding. Paul is showing that confidently here. So as to honor Christ when he comes to destroy all of his enemies because our testimony to you was believed. And again, we see the self-fulfilling prophecy of the Christian scriptures. The Hindus could never do this, the Buddhists couldn't do it, the Shinto tards couldn't do it, all of the idolaters of the world, all of the other races, the voodoo doctors in Africa couldn't do it. They couldn't even write. In fact, hardly any of them could write. The pagans can't do it. We must not be deceived into thinking that the Jews would have preserved the Scriptures if Christians themselves had not preserved them, as the Jews are those very enemies of God of whom Paul speaks here. If Christians had no cognizance of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Jews would have been happy to have destroyed their own copies long ago. The Jews have only maintained copies of the scriptures so that they could maintain a pretense before Christians because Christians have a cognizance of the scriptures. If Christians had no cognizance of the scriptures, the Jewish, well, I hate to think of what the Jews would be following because wherever they go, they put on a pretense of religion, but they really create Sodom and Gomorrah. The Apostle Peter remarked on the return of Christ in light of Christ's own statement and said, where where Christ said, for just as the days of Noah, thusly shall be the coming of the Son of Man. So Peter said in chapter 3 of his second epistle, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, but the heavens and earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But even that does not necessitate that the reference to to fire be taken literally. We're not going to say that it shouldn't be taken literally, but as we've seen in Obadiah, and which is evident in other scriptures which we discussed last week, it may be just an allegory for the wrath of the people of God. Now, This is the justice of Yahweh. This is the righteousness of our God, that all of his enemies are utterly destroyed. And because the children of Israel had failed to do so, they shall be punished until they recognize him, and they are finally willing to do so. The righteousness of God is that all of those who are of his creation are ultimately preserved. And all of those who are corruptions of his creation are ultimately destroyed. As Christ had said, every plant which my heavenly father had not planted shall be rooted up. Therefore we see once again the purpose of the gospel as given by Zacharias and recorded by Luke. Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore, To our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hands of our enemies that we were delivered into 1500 years before the time of Christ might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Paul says here that all of the enemies of God are destroyed at his coming. And then referring to Christ, he says that he shall come to be honored among his saints and to be admired with all those who believe. And this is evidently a reference to what had also been prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 39, speaking of the removal of the wicked. This prophecy is parallel to that given in Revelation chapter 20 where it is described that in the last days Satan, the infernal Jew, Satan gathers all of the nations of the world which are in both places, Ezekiel and the Revelation, described as Gog and Magog and leads them against the camp of the saints or in Ezekiel, the mountains of Israel, which represents the nations of the Christian peoples of Europe, and Europe's colonies. We shall cite Ezekiel 39 here at length, and see that this shall be another lengthy process, which is already underway. Therefore, thou son of man, prophecy against God, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back, and leave but the sixth part of thee, and will cause thee to come up from the north parts, and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And this is being accomplished through Jewry, and through liberalism, a mask for Jewry, at this very time. And I may conjecture, That when the children of Israel in ancient times were chosen, they were to fill the face of the earth with fruit. Exterminating the enemies of Yahweh God in the land of Canaan was only their first test, and they failed it. If they had exterminated them there, and done what they were supposed to do there, they would have eventually taken the entire planet. As we read last week in Isaiah, that once all of the nations incensed against Israel are destroyed, that the children of Israel would fill the face of the world with fruit. After Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 11 is fulfilled, where Yahweh said he would make a full end, of all the nations where the children of Israel were scattered. There is no doubt that this was to happen. Now we see in Ezekiel. That Yahweh's bringing all of these nations of Gog and Magog. Who were gathered by Satan. Into the nations of Israel. I can only conjecture that that's punishment. Because wherever we went we did not destroy them. What did we do? We tried to make them like us. Wherever Christians went and settled colonies, they took the animals, they took the savage beasts, and tried to turn them into people. So now this is what we get. We went there and didn't get rid of them. Well, now they're coming here, and we're stuck with them. This is why we're suffering this current punishment, and there's no way around it where Yahweh says that, I will turn thee back and, and, and leave but the sixth part of thee, and that's not exactly translated appropriately, and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. In Ezekiel 38, it's described as putting hooks in their jaws to bring them into the lands of the children of Israel. And this is being accomplished at this very time. And once they're upon the mountains of Israel, Yahweh says in Ezekiel 39 verse 3, And I will smite thy bow out of thy hand. We wouldn't destroy them where we went, so they're coming here to be destroyed. And it will cause nine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, Thou and all thy bands, and the people that are with thee, put this together with Obadiah, verses 15 and 16. And I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall in the open field, For I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God. And this description also coincides with the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, as well as the surrounding of the camp of the saints in Revelation chapter 20. And I will send a fire on... Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am Yahweh, and that fire may well be the house of Joseph, which destroys the Jews and all the heathens, as it is described in Obadiah. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more and the nations, ostensibly the nations of Israel, because all of the other nations, according to Jeremiah and Obadiah, shall be as though they had not been. And the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith Yahweh God. This is the day whereof I have spoken." And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth, and shall set on fire, and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, and the hand staves, and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. And that seven years may indicate a prophetic period of 2,520 years. So that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any out of the forests. For they shall burn the weapons with fire, and they shall spoil those that spoil them, and rob those that rob them, saith Yahweh God. And it shall come to pass in that day, that I will give unto Gog a place there of graves in Israel." the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers. And there shall they bury Gog, and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of Hamon Gog. And seven months, or perhaps a prophetic period of two hundred and ten years, shall the house of Israel be burying of them, that they may cleanse the land. Yeah, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown. The day that I shall be glorified, saith Yahweh God, his glorification comes in the destruction of his enemies and the salvation of Israel. And they shall sever out men of continual employment, Passing through the land to bury with the passengers those that remain upon the face of the earth to cleanse it. The real holocaust. I can't wait. After the end of seven months shall they search. And the passengers that pass through the land, when any seeth a man's bone, he shall set a sign by it. Till the buriers had buried it in the valley of Ham and gog Evidently they're wearing suits that protect them from the bacteria, <laughs> and also hazardous materials, clothing, and also the name of the city shall be Hamona, I'm only conjecturing in jest. Thus shall they cleanse the land, and hear the fulfillment of Obadiah 15 and 16, is realized in reference to the other peoples of the world who shall be as though they had never been. And I will set my glory among the nations. Skipping to verse 21. And all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. The nations must be the nations of Israel, as Jeremiah and others promise that they are the only nations which remain. So the house of Israel shall know that I am Yahweh their God, from that day and forward. And the nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness, and according to their transgressions, have I done unto them, and hid my face from them. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name, neither will I hide my face any more from them. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith Yahweh God. And this is the day which Yahweh God is truly glorified. As Paul says here, and as we have read in Ezekiel 39.13. These promises in Ezekiel are Christian promises, since they are reiterated by Christ himself in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. And as Paul of Tarsus, who at this time, as he writes to Thessalonians, is writing over 40 years before the revelation was written, looks forward to their fulfillment here. And as Paul explains, the glorification of Yahweh our God is fulfilled when all of his enemies are destroyed. And according to Ezekiel, the prophecies concerning all of the non-Israelite peoples who are organized against the nations of Israel by Satan who is the Jew, which are found in Micah, Obadiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the revelation of Yahshua Christ, are finally all fulfilled. So Paul concludes here with a prayer for God's true chosen people, for which we also pray for you always, that our God has deemed you worthy of the calling, and would fulfill every satisfaction of goodness and work of faith capably. And as Christ referred to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last in the Revelation, we read a plea by Yahweh to the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 48. Hearken unto me O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he I am the first, I am also the last. Men cannot choose God. Rather, it is God who does the choosing. And he has chosen and called only those same Old Testament children of Israel. So it says in Isaiah chapter 49, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors. To a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of Yahweh that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. That is how God has deemed the Thessalonians worthy of the calling because they were descendants of those same Israelites. If If the Thessalonians were not of the descendants of ancient Israel, Paul of Tarsus would have had no ministry there. So the response of the Thessalonians to the news of their salvation in the gospel is also described just as Ezekiel had described it in verse 12. In order, in verse 12 of Paul's little prayer here, in order that the name of our Prince Joshua would be honored by you and you by him, according to the favor of our God and Prince, Joshua Christ. Cleaving to the message of the Gospel, men have a firm line of defense against the devil. We are not going to let them have the Old Testament. It is a Christian book. It contains the same promises that we find in the New Testament. So Paul continues to encourage his readers to cleave to the gospel here, offering the promises of the gospel as a source of comfort. He will continue to do so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he continues to elaborate on the substance of his words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There we shall see that the same Apostle Jude, whom we have cited here, and presenting 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as corroboration for Paul, who quoted from Enoch in reference to the vengeful return of the Christ and the destruction of the enemies of Yahweh, the same Apostle Jude had also written concerning how those enemies had infiltrated the body of Christ from the earliest times. As we have seen here from Deuteronomy, that infiltration and the resulting corruption had happened as early as one generation from the time of Joshua's death, almost immediately after the conquest of Canaan. This will also be the subject for the next presentation of Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. We're discussing chapter 2. We see Satan revealed in Paul's own writing and Jude shall corroborate him once again thank you for listening praise Yahweh the God of Israel and good night tomorrow night the Jews in Europe the mask of Freemasonry part 3 and the final part of that series next Friday Satan revealed according to Paul of Tarsus and other New Testament scriptures (laughs)